0: And this young guy who was my crush in high school walked up to me and said, and I was crying a lot. And he said, what's wrong? And I, and I felt like it was my first time that I could share because I liked this guy and I just, I just trusted him. So I felt it was my first time that I could share truly what was wrong. And I, I expressed to him that I learned different and this guy just yelled at me and just because I'm not able to process the way the other kids were. And he cried with me and he said, Kim, I'm dyslexic too
1: and that meant so much to me because like it was just like the first time that somebody said like you know that somebody was like hey it's okay you can um like I've had these experiences too.
2: Hi I'm Daphne Cohn. Welcome to the Creativity Habit Podcast. Conversations with artists and makers who use creativity to innovate, disrupt, and elevate. Kimberly Beeman was diagnosed with dyslexia when she was five, but the diagnosis didn't mean that life got any easier. In fact, it got a lot harder. As the years went on, and she had experience after experience of teachers threatening and bullying her, her self-esteem plummeted, eventually becoming depression in high school. It took a counselor and vocal lessons to start turning her confidence around, but it was years before she began truly believing in her capabilities and her talents. Today, Kimberly is working to change the way the school system treats children with dyslexia. She's starting with a children's book, My Little Cupcake, designed specifically for kids with learning differences. The colors, the fonts, the textures, everything about it makes learning accessible for all. Kimberly now feels grateful to her dyslexia because it's taught her to be strong, resilient, and to never give up. But it hasn't been easy. In this conversation, Kimberly shares very candidly about some of her more painful experiences growing up, as well as the beautiful ones that helped her turn her life around. In this conversation, we talk about her first emotional breakdown at eight years old, being bullied, threatened, and misunderstood, finding her healing through community and counseling, ditching corporate life to be an entrepreneur, and the first steps in her global vision for change. May it inspire you to make your thing and change your world. Hello, Kimberly. Welcome to the Creativity Habit Podcast. Hi, Daphne. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's great to have you. So the first question that I ask is how creativity showed up for you as a kid?
0: That's a great question. Um, Well, creativity for me has been a lifelong journey. I feel that I was born with this gift as I feel many people are. And so for me, it really developed over time. But as a child, I remember being very early age and just developed um, over time my interest in the arts.
2: What in particular were you drawn to as a kid? What type of art? Well,
0: I was mostly drawn to... Music. My mom, well, my mom would say that as as, as I can recall, I was drawn to um, dance and music and theater because I would just want to do these performances in my garage, and I would invite all the neighbors and tell them to pay just a penny or two to get in. And I would encourage my sisters to be in the performances. So I feel like I was drawn mostly to music, dance, theater, theatrics, performance.
2: Do you remember how it would feel to be up there in front of your neighbors and friends as a young child performing for them?
0: Yes, it would feel amazing. It just, for me, it was euphoric. It was a sense of accomplishment and pride that I could get up and um, be myself and be accepted. And I guess I'm a people pleaser, so I really liked making people feel happy and joyful with me.
2: Did you imagine, like, as a little girl, did you see yourself as an adult, as an actor or singer or dancer up on a stage? Was that part of <laughs> your dream as a little girl?
0: <laughs> yeah, actually, um, from the ear- like, my earliest memories, um, even in elementary school, I remembered sitting in second grade class in Miss O'Neill's class. I was always not always, but often daydreaming. And I remember thinking about one of my biggest goals in life was to be in a music video. So, yeah, I remember very, very early on just wanting to entertain, wanting to really be myself and just be joyful. And and through the arts, I felt like it was just comfortable and natural to do
2: and when you say really be yourself you mean expressing yourself in that way like performing in terms of being yourself
0: yeah definitely being myself i was just inspired by some of the artists i was seeing on television especially you know as i got older and MTV was out and i started just getting really excited about music videos but very early on as a child i would be entranced and just thought about, oh, one day I'm going to be up there on a stage. I'm going to sing. I'm going to perform. I'm going to act. I'm going. And so I started journaling in my diary, and I would call her "Dear Dara," and I would write down these daily entries about how one day I would be doing that.
2: And I know too, Kimberly, and this relates to what you're doing now. I know that one of the challenges for you as growing up was the fact that you were you, you were diagnosed with dyslexia as a child, or did they not know that was what was going on?
0: Yes. Yeah, so in kindergarten, I was diagnosed with dyslexia. My mom had noticed that I was getting my words backwards. Um, the spelling was, you know, B is D and P was B, and just really mixing my letters. In addition to that, when kids would be reading very short passages in, in, in the classroom, my mom would notice that I was not able to understand the story when others were, and the teacher noticed that. So I was diagnosed very early on, kindergarten.
2: Did you notice it? Like, did you feel different at that time?
0: Oh yeah, definitely. I had a strong sense of difference, and it wasn't as strong though as it as it grew. It grew every grade, every level. Every time, you know, I'd go from kindergarten to first grade, first to second, it felt stronger and stronger. And it's funny because sometimes I feel that there's a view about dyslexia and kids with learning um, challenges or differences that they don't have that awareness or that or that it's, or parents often will kind of want to not um, tell their kids about their difference but what I have found with myself personally And also working with people with learning differences is that they often really know very early on that there's something different. And it's not necessarily that they think it's bad or good. It's just that there's a difference. And sometimes I feel that develops because of society and just the way that it's approached in the classroom and the way that um, children with learning challenges or differences are looked at or approached and the different strategies and teaching that's used in the classroom.
2: When you were five and you knew you were different, but and as you said, it, the the difference got more pronounced over the years. We're going to go into that. But did yeah. you have a judgment around it then? Did was it a good or bad, or was it just different?
0: Not really in kindergarten. I just remember realizing, just a realization of, "Gosh, I really wish I could understand what my friends are giggling about right now." It was more of, "Hey, I looked up, and everybody's on their beanie bags and you know enjoying." what they were reading and I'm at like still at the first sentence trying to repeat it over and over, having no clue what it said. And so I would just drift off into my daydreams and my dreaming about the stage and music videos.
1: Cause I had cause what are you to do. Right.
0: So I would just be daydreaming and then the teacher would come by and say, um, Kimberly, are you reading your story? What, what was it saying? I'm like, Oh, I don't know. So that's,
1: that was my awareness started there.
2: You said that it grew, like more pronounced with each passing year. How how yeah. did that happen? Because from a from an, a naive or ignorant perspective, I would think, oh, okay, she's diagnosed. That's great. Now everybody knows. Now it's going to get easier. Yeah.
0: But it's not yeah. Fine. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. Yeah. You would think, and that that's the hope is that it would get easier through intervention, through support. I have, I have, and I had an amazing family support, which is great. And that helped me a lot, but the challenges came in the school system because, you know, there can be great connection between the parent and the administrators and the teachers, but That's not what really makes a difference. What makes a difference is the system. And back when I was in school, the system was to have the kids with the disabilities, quote unquote, or the differences in one classroom and the kids that are gifted in a different. And so it really created a sense of segregation and a feeling that what was different about me was wrong and not right and bad. And it's not that... I mean, if the parents knew that that's how I felt or children felt, then they wouldn't want that for their kids, but they didn't. And we didn't have the words. I didn't have the words to express that upset that I was feeling uh, at such a young age. So I think part of it is the system. And you can have a wonderful teacher, and I had many great teachers, but then if the system isn't there and it's creating division instead of inclusion that child begins to feel more and more divided. And so for me, that was my experience. And I'm, and it could be different for others, but my experience was being in a, a separate room in which it felt like I was being babysat. We have kids, you know, basically playing on the projector board with colors. And then they're like, oh, time's up. You can go back to class. And so I would go back to class. And when I get back, the kids are staring girlfriends of mine and I remember second grade giggling and upset because now suddenly I'm deemed teacher's pet and um, sitting really close next to the teacher because um, you get one-on-one time with the teacher and just a feeling of difference kept brewing and growing of wow this doesn't feel good I want to be different but I want to be different in a way that felt great and not divided and, and sort of you know th- that they're there they are and we're over there <laughs> So, and now people understand more and more that you can have dyslexia and be really gifted. It is a gifted, it's a gifted thing. It's not something that's negative, but as a child, I mean, it's really hard to understand that even if a parent sits you down and says, Hey, it's okay. You're, you're different. And my mother did. Um, she sat down with me and said, Kimberly, don't be, cause I had a, I had an emotional breakdown when I was like, uh maybe it was like eight or nine after one of my piano lessons an initial piano lessons. And, um, I was crying, crying in the car. And she's like, what's wrong? And I said, I I just, something's wrong. Something's wrong. I don't understand why I can't do the music. And, um, she was just like, Kimberly, you're different, but that's not a bad thing. It's, it's, it's actually a good thing. And you're going to be great right in life. You can do stuff. You can do things. You can, you're going to succeed. And even though I heard those messages, it was really hard to verbalize the feelings that I had from a really young age.
2: When you say that you had an emotional breakdown, was there something that happened or was it just like the cu- accumulation of all the different experiences and you left that class, that, that piano lesson? Just for-
0: yeah. So I had a couple different experiences with music that had different effects on me, but this is the, and this is my initial, I think it was my first or second uh, visit with a, a particular piano coach. And uh, I had noticed a young boy go in before me and he came out smiling, beaming. Parents were really proud and he walked out accomplished. And I walked in, sat down and I had already been preparing this very short musical piece. It was like, you know twinkle twinkle or something like that and I sat down and it, it like I could not remember the keys I was having stro- struggling with you know where my finger placement was and she just kept repeating herself and repeating herself and, and trying to teach me in a linear fashion the way that the other kids were being taught and it, it wasn't registering at all and so I think it was to answer your question it was a, a culmination of emotions that had it felt like a volcano, you know, just slowly erupting. And just, this was one of those moments where she was pushing and pushing me and trying to be positive, but also stern. And I couldn't do it for her. I felt like I've let her down. I, I can't, I'm not able to play the piano like that other little boy who was younger than me. He walked out. And so I left in tears. I just got to the car and just sobbing. And my mom sat me down and just explained to me that Yes, there's something a little different about your learning, but you're, you know, you're wonderful, you're beautiful, and she's always so sweet to, you know, try to pick me up, And but it didn't matter. I still felt my self-esteem was dropping, and self-confidence, and my abilities to do things
1: at that point.
2: And, so, and then it continued on, like, over the next several yeah. years as a young child, and then as a teenager, like, what... What other things were happening that were reinforcing this idea that you were somehow less than because of your dyslexia?
0: Well, if I look at just in in general in elementary school, just the culmination of feeling different and realizing that, you know, when the teachers were pulling me aside individually to do this individual work with writing and I would, the words would be backwards. Or when I was on the playground with kids and I would sometimes misread their nonverbals, um, which now as an adult I'm, I'm very aware of that, but as a child, I would was very sensitive, so I would think that if they're not asking me to be next to them on the on on the set that they didn't want to be my friends or like misreading their nonverbal cues. Is that
2: uh, a part of dyslexia is a misreading of verbal and nonverbal cues, or is that just are being a child who was not feeling great about who she was because of so
0: definitely both, but it affects you know the way we process not just the written letters, which is often I think a misconception with dyslexia, but dyslexia affects processing across the board so for some people it's processing your experience your sensory experience for some people it's verbal dyslexia just getting sort of words um, jumbled up or maybe you're talking about something you're not able to say what the word is you're specifically talking about so I might say sometimes oh um, maybe I'm talking about uh, a particular school like let's say my, my daughter's school and I want to name the school but it's not coming to me quickly in my head so instead of saying the school's name I say you know let's go to that place you know the one with the white walls and the the big tall steeple and you know the huge parking lot and so it's kind of a way languages approach approached the brain is kind of developing in a different way and other connections are being made. And it's not a bad thing. It's just the way that children with dyslexia process the world. And so I feel that it did affect me in other ways, such as through social interactions. I mean, I had, I remember having a lot of friends and being very social kids liked me. I just didn't feel liked. I felt like in my heart, oh, I have all these friends, but I still didn't feel as close to them for some reason I felt removed and maybe maybe that was partly just like childhood depression slowly growing because my self-confidence started to
2: plummet over time just grew and grew when you say your self-confidence was plummeting and maybe that was the beginning of childhood depression like what what how did that start to show up for you
0: I can think of another experience I had with a a piano coach, a piano teacher. So my self-confidence and self-esteem started to plummet with different experiences I had, not just with school, but also in music settings and other areas of my life. And one of the memories I have that's very fond for me in my in my reflection is going to this particular teacher's house. And we had had private lessons, my sisters and I, with her. And, and I walked in and We had been practicing a particular music piece, and she asked me to get it out, and I was, you know, your hands have to be up a certain way, and I got that part, I was feeling confident, and then I had to start, you know, processing, okay, there's the note on the page, and then there's my hands, and it's a lot of coordination, and so I just didn't do it correctly, and I kept trying to repeat it, and she's very stern and kept saying, no, no, that's not it. And it went from, no, that's not right, to you haven't been doing your work. And what I knew in my head is that I had been working really hard. I was practicing, and so, already I was starting to get frustrated, and then I didn't get a particular key, and she says, if you don't do this correctly, I'm gonna slam your fingers into the keyboard. And I remember my sister, younger sister, was just about to come in for her lesson, I remember feeling like, oh my gosh, I hope she comes in really soon to like save me from this experience. And uh, I guess I did it correctly because my fingers did not get slammed in the in the keyboard. And I just remember I went to the bathroom and was washing my hands and I couldn't believe that that experience had just happened. That this woman just threatened me that she would hurt my fingers if I didn't follow
2: her directions. Were you scared? Were you angry? What happened? Yeah, I was,
0: oh my gosh, so much fear came over me. I was afraid. I felt ashamed that I had something different about me that wouldn't be uh, accepted, that I couldn't even try, keep trying on the piano because if I did, something bad would happen again. As a child, I thought of it as, this is bad. I need to keep this to myself. How am I going to keep doing what I love, which was music, if this keeps happening, this kind of experience where I, I didn't, I didn't understand why, why was she doing this? Why, why am I getting this threat? But my sisters weren't, you know, they were going in and being able to play beautifully. And I'm sure they had their challenges too, as many kids do, but I was hearing great things from them. So I walked out and I, I told my mom, I'm never going back. And I told her what happened and I never went back. But it was experiences like this that continued to um, hurt my self-esteem, self-confidence. And, and I began to believe that I maybe wouldn't be good enough to achieve things that I wanted to achieve in life or that or that I was afraid to. Because what would happen if I spoke up or told somebody about my learning challenges? And if I did speak up about my learning challenges, what would be the result? What's the consequence?
2: So for the most part, you wouldn't tell people, like they didn't know? I started hiding it more and more. like Because originally, my mom would
0: share with somebody, you know, like with a teacher, not with the school. But personally, I was hiding it. I was concealing, like I wouldn't speak about it. Through elementary school, into middle school, I was very ashamed. That shame turned into depression because I felt like I didn't have an outlet, I didn't have... Didn't feel like I had somebody to talk to about it.
2: How old were you when that began to turn more into depression?
0: It was about halfway through middle school. I actually had an experience in middle school where I was in math class, and this was in eighth grade. One of the instructors had been calling on on different individuals in the class to answer a particular formula that was on the board, and, and I tried... To understand the formula, but I wasn't getting it. And he, in the middle of class, stopped class and was like, Kim, you're not paying attention. You're not listening. You haven't done your work, obviously, because I wasn't able to be as responsive as the other kids in the classroom were with the, the math formula on the board. And he was just very abrupt and very, what I would, what I felt was kind of aggressive in his approach um, to me, kind of pointing me out in front of all of the kids in the class. And so I actually ran out of the classroom in eighth grade. I darted out. I ran from the class and I found a seat in sort of like the, Lobby area outside. And this young guy who was my crush in high school walked up to me and said, and I was crying a lot. And he said, what's wrong? And I, and I felt like it was my first time that I could share because I liked this guy and I just, I just trusted him. So I felt it was my first time that I could share truly what was wrong and I I expressed to him that I learned different and this guy just yelled at me and just because I'm not able to process the way the other kids were and he cried with me and he said Kim I'm dyslexic too
1: and that meant so much to me because like it was just like the first time that somebody said like you know that somebody was like hey it's okay you can um like I've had these experiences too
2: and what is it in particular that makes you cry about that thinking back?
1: I had held on to so much for so long from elementary through middle school. I didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings, including my my parents and my my friends and family and um it had accumulated into what I feel was pretty pretty bad like depression and I just remember in middle school, you know, walking around and just daydreaming and not wanting to be there and um, wanting to be in a different environment. And um, I just remember, like, when when this guy came up to me, it just made a world of a difference to me. And it's not because he was my crush. It was because he could relate and he was dyslexic. He was saying, like hey, that's awesome. He was saying, it's a good thing and you shouldn't be ashamed of it. And he was saying how wrong it was for this particular instructor to have treated me like that in front of the class. And basically that he had gone through similar experiences in his life and um, to keep my head up, that he would be there for me. And that just, it was a huge game changer for me. And actually, I I never even realized it till this moment, how, how impactful that was. But I think
0: that, you know, having a mentor and having somebody in your life who can say this is
1: positive and not bad and not shameful is just huge. Having somebody to tell you that you can do it, you know, and even, I mean, my
0: parents told me that all along I could do it. But when it comes from a peer or somebody that also has dyslexia or also has whatever it may be, depression, bipolar, whatever it is. When it comes from that person, it means a lot more. I feel because they're saying, "Hey, you know, it's you're not. This is not something to be ashamed of."
2: Did things shift for you in terms of your own perspective around being dyslexic at that point, or did it continue to was it did it continue to be something that you struggled with emotionally? I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not pretending that one moment changed everything. So I'm curious, like, what effect that had on you, and what happened it- after that
0: yeah no that's a really good question. yeah I still struggled emotionally, and even to this day, I'll be honest, like I still have my moments i mean it's it's not easy i I'm happy with my dyslexia now, and I see the see the the benefits I see all the wonders that it is and um all the great things about it but yeah it it took a long time to get to this place that I'm at now of acceptance and happiness. But yes, it was a it was a changing moment, life changing moment, right there at the eighth grade, going to ninth grade, when I realized that other people have these similar experiences and that I could be happy. And but emotionally, it got a lot more challenging in high school because there were a, there was a lot more emphasis on academics. And when the books were piling up, I'm in a private school that was very pro Ivy League and pro getting into the best programs, highest GPA, and that was the focus. I wanted to do all those things. I wanted to be what everybody else was. I wanted to get into the Ivy League schools and show that I could do it. But it was extremely challenging. I had to forfeit social opportunities in order to stay afloat and to actually excel and get good grades. So I did do well, mostly. I had great grades overall, but it took a lot
2: to get to that place. I just want to you- with the question here, because this may be, I, I don't know, it, it's not meant to have judgment in it. So just, you know, hear it how you hear it. But I'm wondering as a parent of, yes. of two teenagers at this point, yeah. if one of them had dyslexia and was really struggling in school, I... I'm curious where the decision was made to have you be in a private school that was so strongly academically focused and Ivy League oriented. Was that something that you want? Like, it's, I'm trying to wrap my head around that.
0: Yeah, no, that, no, I think, yeah, I hear what you're saying. And, um, yeah, uh, I remember, the topic coming up about the school and my sister was at the school and my younger sister had planned to be at the school. And originally I was not on board with being at the private school and it was brought to my attention uh, about going there. And now my mom has actually said she kind of regrets that decision, but we talked about it and I realized, you know, also the pros, because I don't feel I would have done as well in college if I wasn't prepared. Like college for me was easier as a result of my high school experience, but the decision I'm sure was very difficult that for my family to have made, and it was one that was regret- regretted later. And I actually tried to get out of high school <laughs> at my private school. Um, in 10th grade, I begged my mom to send me to a creative arts program. Locally and we applied. I applied to the school, but it was too late. I got a rejection letter saying that you had to have applied the year prior. So I actually think it was the beginning of my junior year, and I said, sorry, you had to apply your sophomore year. So for me, that was another feeling of like defeat because I wanted to so badly to get out of this high academic situation that I was in. So I began to find outlets outside of high school as a result of all this upsetness. My parents did not know how upset I was until junior year when I had another breakdown over dinner. We were actually at a Chinese restaurant and I remember drinking hot tea. And then with every sip of the tea, tears just started streaming like out of nowhere. And they were so like shocked. What is going on? They thought their kid was excelling, that that high school wasn't They knew it was difficult, but had no clue the emotional turmoil that I was on inside that I'd kept so hidden. So it was coming out. It was starting to leak like a leaky faucet, just slowly coming out, slowly coming out. And that was one of those experiences. And I got help. I started seeing a counselor, um, my junior year, and that was helping me through the depression and just to graduate. By the time we got to, uh, senior year, all my friends were so sad. They're crying, holding each other. I'm going to miss you. You know, I'm I'm like screaming with joy. Like, I I cannot wait to get out of the school. And it's not negative about the school. It's, it was a great program, amazing, like wonderful people. But I was just like, I've had enough. Let me be free.
2: <laughs> were so, you able to articulate? So it sounds like that night when you were at the Chinese restaurant, you yeah. were able to say what was going on enough. Yeah. Like, yeah
0: it was the first that. time. Yeah. Yeah, it was the first time that I was able to actually verbalize, something's wrong, enough's enough. And I didn't know fully, I mean, I had also lost my grandfather. He had died, like, very unexpectedly within two weeks, my sophomore, I think it was my sophomore year. So it was an accumulation of, like, already feeling depressed and then family loss. And so that just led into, hey, this is one of those, something's happening. And they realized that my mom jumped on that opportunity to get me help. So I started seeing a counselor. And at that point, I started taking vocal lessons as well. And that really helped me to um, step into my own voice and be happy again. I'm really grateful for
1: that.
2: And so is that when, Kimberly, things started to turn around for you? Like, what was the trajectory that led you to to now? And I know that's a big leap.
0: Sure. Okay. So the big turnaround for me was, basically doing the vocal lessons that was huge um i think my mom and parents realized something's not right when that happened in junior year so going to counseling and having somebody listen ongoing and trying to dig and understand what what was what was i experiencing was a big part of sort of like a healing process and in, in addition to that The vocal coach training was amazing because I felt like I could just be free and sing and I was getting a lot of positive feedback too from my vocal coach saying that I had a strong voice and I should keep using it. And so finally having that positive response and really tapping into my inner child because it's something I've always wanted to do was to sing, perform, act, (laughs) being theatrical, it was accumulation of those experiences and then realizing that when I graduated, I was being encouraged to go after those things. And I did. I was in a theater program. I ended up leaving the theater program because I wanted to explore being a singer. So I did a demo, a music demo, and I just started following more of my interests. However, I didn't really take it seriously until later on. It was kind of like dabbling in different things, knowing that I wanted to be a performer, but not taking myself seriously and not believing in myself. And that's, I guess, an earlier question you had about my emotions and how long it took for me emotionally because of the self-confidence being so low to actually how long it was that I was feeling so low in my self-confidence and self-esteem. And I mean, even then, even after high school, even after going after vocal training and being in theater and all these things, I still was struggling very much with my self-confidence and self-esteem because of all the experiences I had and just internalizing that I wasn't good enough.
2: And so because of that, you that that's what part of what led you to not take it so seriously? Yes.
0: It was kind of like, well, other people aren't going to take me seriously. So I guess I'll just keep doing this. And I wanted so badly to take myself seriously. I wanted to, to be very successful. I wanted, but I just, didn't feel I would be uh, that I'd be able to be capable I just thought there would be a, a point where I wouldn't be able to to figure things out I wouldn't be able to uh, sing the way I wanted to sing or that somebody would secretly find out about my dyslexia and that there would be a consequence right. so it just it felt like that it felt like a secret
2: like at some moment just in the same way with your piano teacher mm-hmm. it would- so, or your math teacher, that someone would call you out and say, you haven't been doing the work. and
0: Exactly, exactly. Like a fear, a fear of, oh my gosh, if I keep doing this at some point, what's the point? Because somebody will try to take me down or tell me I, I'm not good enough or um, tell me to shut up, which that also happened too by a guitar instructor, just because I didn't understand a specific chord. You know, and then it got to a point where things started to turn around, and I took myself more seriously. What was so, that?
2: Was, like, what, what caused it to start to turn around? Well, one of
0: the big turning points for me was in grad school, I guess it was different experiences, but that stood out for me as, you know, I went through a very painful experience of having lost my grandmother in in her battle to cancer and followed by the tragic death of a classmate in college. And um, having suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder in grad school while I was in a program as a counselor, counseling people, counseling people through PTSD, all of a sudden I found myself with PTSD I was an intern in my program about to, about to finish my master's degree. And I was struck, we were all struck by tragedy. And so it was very, it was very challenging to, um, just counsel them, um, emotionally to counsel people and
1: help them through traumatic experiences when you've also been traumatized. So a big life changing time for me was having lost a very dear friend and, (laughs) In a very tragic and unexpected way, and then on top of that, to have lost my best friend, who was my grandmother and um and so like we all just kind of like helped each other in this small cohort that we had and got through it and
0: graduated
2: What was your state of mind during that time as you're getting through it quote unquote?
0: well, my state of mind was. We always were taught in counseling aspirational ethics, which is to go above and beyond. To go above and beyond our duty of being counselors, meaning we always do what's best for the client and the patient. I just put my own grief aside. I was seeing a counselor at the time, myself, while I was a counselor. An amazing counselor at UCF. I just, I was just struggling. You know, behind the scenes I was struggling, but I was basically, I was hard to keep it together. I was doing the right thing for my clients, but I was I was had to hold it together. Then I had a supervisor who was telling me, you know, be, be true, you know, with, with your clients, the clients are looking at you. Yeah. You don't want to be bawling, crying the whole time, but allow some of it to come out. It's okay for your client to see that you're sad. And so I started to kind of allow a little bit of my tears to come out and they were very receptive and understanding. I'm they were like, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, thank you. Now let, let's talk about you. And then i switch it back to them. And, we just had to be selfless and just really get through a very traumatic period.
2: So much of your experience with dyslexia was very alone. You know, you felt very much you were different from almost everybody else, and yeah. you you really went through this alone. And like as you said, you know, even your your family didn't realize the degree to which you were struggling with this until that yeah. that moment. And so I'm wondering, and then we're going to get into the art piece of this, but I'm wondering if going through those traumatic experiences with this small cohort, if that changed something for you because you were experiencing grief, but in a community.
0: Yeah, definitely. Did it change anything for me? Yes, because I felt support. We were supporting each other. I learned healing. I learned about the art of healing, which is such an art form in and of itself. Counseling people is very therapeutic. Get, get through this experience together and how can we support each other? And so definitely, um, there was a change in the sense of feeling like I had support and I could support others. And I was able to tell people about my dyslexia at that time with support. And in addition, I got some really good feedback from supervisors. I actually had an experience when I was um, counseling a, a grandmother with a granddaughter, and the granddaughter had a auditory processing disorder. So it was so basically like she can process fine, but it was delayed. And so I would ask her a question, and I would wait a few minutes, and then she'd respond. And I I had decided after a few sessions that. I would share with her and the grandmother about my dyslexia and usually we don't share our personal information unless we feel that it's helpful to the to the ch- child's benefits the client's benefits so I decided to share thinking that it would be received well that I'm dyslexic and the grandmother was appalled when I told her you know I'm dyslexic and I thought that I could help her daughter with specific things that I had gone through and um, she was appalled she was like counseling is not going to keep happening now because I know you're not can't do this with my granddaughter
2: she She thought you couldn't do it because of
0: why my dyslexia that's it just hearing the word dyslexic she um she said I'm not capable that she doesn't doesn't believe she can come back but thank you so much and um they left well I walked away and talked to my supervisor in tears again and he said it's not a reflection of you It's a reflection of her own insecurities about something she doesn't understand, and it's not comfortable for her, and it's it's okay that you share. So it took a little bit, but I felt I was supported. Because finally a supervisor is telling me it's a good thing and you didn't do anything wrong and you're not going to have a consequence. If they don't come back, you know, that's not your fault. And actually the, the, the young girl appreciated it and she came back without the grandmother. She wanted to keep seeing me and I worked with her for a few more sessions and then that's all she needed and she went on her way and it was ended up being a therapeutic experience. And again, that sense, like you mentioned earlier, that sense of community of acceptance and understanding about dyslexia was there with like the supervisor and the people I knew.
2: So then you actually took this. What's amazing is you took this whole experience of something that for years, for so much of your life, you just did not even tell people. And now here you are, you're starting to tell people. Yeah. And then you end up becoming a mom Mm -hmm. and (laughs) After your daughter was, your first child was born, you went back to work, but you you realized you didn't want to be at your work. You wanted to be with your daughter and you wanted to be home doing something as living as an entrepreneur. Yes. Yeah. Tell me about what you're doing now around dyslexia and, and being an entrepreneur.
0: Yes, I'd love to. Um, thank you so much. After my daughter was born, I started singing this song called My Little Cupcake. And it just naturally was coming to me as I'm rocking her. And I'd stay up at night thinking of creative ideas. But I would, right after she was born, I started singing this song. And I would just keep repeating it over and over again. And then um, I ended up going back to work. I worked part-time for a while. And then I got a job full-time. But I missed her so much to the point that it was just, like, like hurting me to work. Like, I just emotionally could not disconnect from a feeling of like that we weren't even close I just wanted some I wanted more time with her and so I ended up leaving the job after a lot of thought about this story that came to me I took the idea of this lullaby called my little cupcake and it developed into a story and book my daughter just loves reading she loves anything to do with books and has loved reading since she was a baby, like tiny, just always in, they're always in her hands. I started thinking to myself, I wish I had that experience as a child. I wanted to be able to love books. And, and thankfully that love for books did develop in, great part due to my mom teaching me at home to read in, in alternative ways through tactile experiences, through Play-Doh, through music. So, um, it did develop, but I thought, you know what? What's missing? are books for children that are more inclusive in the way that they're designed. And so these ideas started forming while I was sitting at my desk at UCF and I was helping people with accommodations for their disability or learning difference. So I was helping them and I was thinking to myself, how much I miss my daughter and how I want to make a bigger impact on the world. And so I started thinking, I need to be an entrepreneur. I had some great support. At UCF, and they were saying you're really pretty good at like getting out and being social. And the I actually developed um, something called Access Your Inner Voice, which was a show at UCF that I started. And people would get up on stage and talk about something that that was secret that they now wanted to share publicly. And it was a way for people to get up on the stage. We had a really great turnout, and. They could share something deep and emotional about themselves and then get off the stage. And that was it. And it was well, well received. And so I was getting this feedback from people like, hey, you're pretty good at this kind of thing. And I start, started thinking, I don't want to be here anymore sitting at this desk. It's just not for me. These ideas continued. And um, long story short, I came up with this book with the help of um, family and friends. And again, that sense of community and um, not being afraid to ask for help. Even my daughter gave me ideas for the story. And it's called My Little Cupcake. It's about the sweet and sassy girl named Daisy, who the character originated after my daughter. She's wanting to have a tea party, but her mom has other plans in mind. And so... It's just this fun story about making cupcakes and getting messy, and it's written with accessibility in mind. We use multi sensory learning auditory, visual, and tactile, and it helps um, kids, I feel, to better absorb what they're reading. I think what makes the book different is that. We have activities at the back, and in addition to that, we have a cupcake recipe. Also, we use a specific font. It's called dyslexia, and it was specifically designed uh, for children with dyslexia, and it's the way that the letters are written that helps increase absorption. And then the color of the book was researched, and I wanted to have colors that were more friendly to our light-sensitive users, whether it's because you get a headache or it's because maybe you have a child with autism who is, light, is very light-sensitive. Um, even people with dyslexia often have something called Erlen syndrome, which affects their eyes and how they view the ri- written word when there's too much bright light. And so I was just very intentional about creating a simple book but it had um, a message and a meaning of inc- inclusion for children.
2: And where do you see this going?
0: Well, I, I, I see it in big pictures. I see I see big things. I see it going all over, all over the world. I want to talk to people about acceptance of children early on in the message of no shame. I would love for my daughter and I, and what we've been doing is working together to read to different classrooms and to spread the message of acceptance. That every child is unique. Every child is different. Everybody has something they're working on and we don't need to be ashamed of it. And so my goal is to start with the classrooms and grow, you know, grow into a, a, a brand. I really want the book to be a series So in the first book, we have the characters. We've introduced the characters, but I intentionally did not show disability in the book. So because I want the message to be that we're people first. Everybody has something they're working on. So we have the characters introduced. And then my goal is to introduce hidden, hidden differences in another book and show um, a scene of the school classroom in the next book and talk about these things openly with kids in a way that feels comfortable and natural without labeling. I see it going from there, and I'd love to um, talk about the story. We, we discussed being on like talk shows to get to create a bigger message of the story and the topic of accessibility and to, to spread that awareness to a larger scale.
2: Well, one question I have just in relation to the book and stuff and, and to dyslexia is what do you feel then is the the main message that you got as a result of going through all of this? Like what do you feel that dyslexia has taught you about your relation to yourself and to other people?
0: Yeah. What has it taught me? What has dyslexia taught me? It has taught me to be resilient. It has taught me dyslexia. If I could talk to my dyslexia, I would say thank you, because it's taught me to be strong. It's taught me to be strong in the sense of I've been able to realize that it's not my dyslexia. That's not the problem. And that... I actually have a lot of gifts to offer the world, as do many people with dyslexia. I feel that it has, cr- it has allowed me to become an entrepreneur, to realize that, that my strengths are with being an entrepreneur. I often see the end result before I see the pieces that add up to the end result, if that makes sense. I'll see a whole puzzle before I see the pieces. And sometimes that can be challenging not to see the pieces, but that's okay because We need people like that. We need people. There's a lot of very successful artists that are dyslexic. I'm thankful for it. I'm grateful for it. It's taught me to just never give up. It's given me a chance to, I don't think I would be as persistent and driven if I didn't have dyslexia. It's really allowed me to, or pushed me to um, be the best I can be. I've always wanted to prove to myself and to others that I could do it. And it also taught me, like, don't be afraid to ask for help. It takes a village, you know, like they say, that quote, it takes a village to raise a child. Um, but I feel like that applies to life. It takes a community uh, of support and it's okay to ask for help and and find that sense of community. So it's it's really helped me in many ways. And it's also helped me to explore my inner child a little more and to be more creative and playful as a result And this all evolved. It wasn't always like this. I didn't always feel so good about my dyslexia, as you just heard. But through time and experience, and thankfully to mentors and just people that stood up and said, no, this is great. And also reading about successful people in the arts really helped my turn around the low self-confidence and self-esteem into something really positive.
2: Yeah. So before we finish up, actually, I just have uh, one last question. and. I want to make sure that people know where they can find your book and they can keep track of where you're at. And if and if there's people listening, like if you if your kids are dyslexic or if you work in a school or if you're, there's a way that you feel you can help, either this book will make a personal difference in your life or you can help bring it into someone else's life, then definitely go check out Kimberly's work. It's at Kimberly Beeman, and that's... K i m b e r l y, Beamen b e a m a n dot com, and there you can find, you can see the pictures of my little cupcake. You can read all about it and and contact Kimberly if you want to, because I just think I've had friends who are dyslexic. I have kids uh, of friends who are dyslexic, and I. And I know you're not speaking just to dyslexia, you're speaking to all different abilities that we have and, and it even today, after all these many years of of understanding in particular dyslexia and, and just difference period, it still is a massively often very misunderstood area in in the lives of of kids as they as they go through the system and So I think it's so important, and that actually leads into the gratitude because I do feel like, especially one of my best friends, her daughter's dyslexic, there's been so many elements along the journey that have been challenging. And I just feel like the more that we can do to bring, like in your case, you're bringing your personal experience and then you're bringing your creativity all together to communicate this message of acceptance and inclusion and, like you say, no shame. And that, I think, is the most important piece. I mean, you have been through so much in terms of feeling ashamed about who you are and about what your difference is. And the truth is we all, like you said, we all go through that. We all have shame around different parts of who we are. And so to have this message of whoever you are is who is like just who you need to be and to accept that and to be teaching that at such a young age is, is such a beautiful gift. And then to be doing it with your daughter. I mean, what, what a wonderful way to bring the next generation into all of this. So yeah. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I would, if
0: you don't mind, I would like to share with parents just some thoughts about, um, okay. I think one of the biggest piece like advice I would give to a parent When a child's really young, dyslexia um, is really, like you said, number one, to allow that child to be who they are, but use the strengths of the child, the interests of the child to better understand their world. So if your child's into paint or let's say they're really not, they're into Legos or something like that you know, use that as an opportunity to have a discussion with a child and see if you can understand their world in a creative way. A lot of times kids will express their feelings through art. And so I think, um, a great opportunity for not just parents, but also teachers is to as much as they can, as much flexibility as they have in the system, you know, within the school system, but to advocate for those kids to um, speak openly about the topic of like, let's say dyslexia to the class without pointing the child out, without segregating a child, but just to have these opportunities to read books, um, whether it be through our story or other stories, but to read stories that empower kids to understand that it's not wrong or not bad and not shameful. To know, I think one of the biggest misconceptions, like, you were saying Daphne is that you know there are misconceptions about dyslexia and misunderstandings and I think one of them is that oh maybe this person doesn't have as high of an intelligence or isn't as smart in certain things, but that's a fault. That's not even true. That it's actually a sign of, um, a, a sign of, a, there's all kinds of smarts and all kinds of intelligence. And so you can actually have a child with dyslexia who's also gifted and goes to the gifted class. So it's really a different way of processing, processing the world and processing our experiences. I think the biggest thing parents can do is really advocate and just with the school and with the teachers and find creative ways in the classroom to teach in a not just a linear fashion but an abstract way. Like my mom used to use, and if I mentioned this earlier in, in our discussion, but she used to use her own play-Doh that she created out of uh, peanut butter and it was edible, but she'd bring it into the classroom and we would use it to create letters. and so I think there's other ways if we think outside the box, there's other ways to teach than just a linear worksheet fashion. So I, I'm thankful, like you said, the gratitude piece. I'm thankful for the amazing teachers out there who are doing such great work to create a new way, a new path in the school systems today. Because I think there is a change. It just seems slow at times, but I think there is a change system-wide that is saying, hey, we're recognizing that kids need to be more accepted and we're recognizing that we need to be more inclusive in our education instead of segregating. And so I think that would be my advice. And just to focus on what kids are doing right, not what they're doing wrong. And focus on, use the strengths and use what they're doing right. And if they aren't getting something right and you need intervention, that's fine. Do a little intervention. But um, I wouldn't go overboard. I would focus on all all the great things that they're doing well and and really increase um, the attention to that. So I hope that I just wanted to share a little bit more um, based on what you were saying, Daphne, about what I meant.
2: No, that's great. Thank you so Um, much, Kimberly. Yeah, thank you, Daphne.
0: It's been great. I really appreciate you having me on your show. Um, I feel like like this is the best therapy session I've ever had.
2: I'm Daphne Cohn, and you've been listening to the Creativity Habit Podcast. For more conversations with brave and experimental artists, head on over to the CreativityHabit.com. You can follow the Creativity Habit on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, please go to the iTunes podcast and just take a minute or two to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Every review means more folks find out about all the incredible artists and makers who are doing such beautiful work in the world. So thank you for taking a little bit of your time to share your thoughts over at iTunes. And then join me next week for another Creativity Habit podcast. And thank you for listening.